I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to this special edition of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. And for those of you who watched and hopefully, well, listened and hopefully watched our last podcast with David Lewis, I had promised a follow-up on Title IX and the Cleary Act, and that's what you were getting today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I have two guests with me. Our first guest is Karen Trzowski, who is an attorney and knows a heck of a lot about Title IX and the Clary Act, and she's here to help us understand it from the parents' point of view. Also with us is Kathy Redman, who is an activist. She is the founder of the We Lead Project, which she started back in 1998 and actually filed the very first Title IX lawsuit against the University of Nebraska regarding a rape that happened there. And so both of these women have extensive experience and extensive knowledge on the remedies available to our kids and to us as parents not only when they go to college, but also through the K through 12 process, which I didn't even realize some of this stuff existed. So for those of you who are more knowledgeable than me, um, more power to you. But for the rest of us, I think we're in for a really educational session with both Kathy and Karen. So I'm going to bring them both on the line now. Uh, Maybe. Let's see. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So before we go any further, can y'all give us just kind of a down and dirty, what is Title IX, what is the Cleary Act, and why do we need to know about it? Karen, you take that one. Well, uh, Title IX is a federal statute. It's very simple. Basically what Title IX says is that your education should continue without any interference based, well, it says based upon your sex, but really in this day and age, I would prefer to say gender. So it basically says your, your education cannot be interfered with based upon your gender. So that's a really simple way of putting it. So what does that really mean? Um, In the context of kids going to school, either K through 12 or colleges and universities, private and public, by the way, and I'll talk about that in a minute, basically what it means is if your child is sexually harassed, sexually abused, uh, you know, and that can be a range of uh, calling people, you know, derogatory names up to, you know, rape and assault. If that happens to a child and that interferes with their ability to get their education, 
Title IX kicks in at that point. And what does that mean? So Title IX has very specific protections for kids and young adults that are in colleges and universities. So uh, a lot of people think of Title IX in the uh, context of sports, that if you know there's a boys baseball team, there has to be a girls softball right. team. That's that is true as well because they're being you know that's discrimination based upon gender. If you have something for the boys and you don't have it for the girls, but it extends a lot further than that. And what parents and kids need to be aware of is it's not your imagination that if if this doesn't feel right and you don't you're scared to go to class, you're scared to go to the lunchroom. Um, all these types of things because somebody's harassing you or you're in the presence of someone that has harassed you, that's when Title IX kicks in. And that's really important for parents and kids to know that you do have rights under Title IX. And we're going to talk about what those are in a little bit. Now, the Cleary Act is a little bit different. They have some of the same concepts, but what Cleary really is, is it's more about reporting and letting the public know what's going on in that particular institution. How many burglaries do you have? How many car thefts do you have? And it doesn't just apply only to sexual assault. It applies to any particular kind of crime, including homicide and arson. So those, it, Cleary is about collecting statistics, keeping track of what's going on, and giving the public notice that these things are happening. So... Did that, did, they, did that kind of give a small overview? Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> Kathy, you had something to add. Yeah, I think what's important to kind of notice, it, there was a lot of people might recall a dust-up for the last few years with regard to um, Betsy DeVos and the Department of Ed and Title IX regulations and all of that, the new guidance. Um, I think... What's important to take away from Title IX, which applies to K-12 and applies to colleges and universities, um, <clears throat> is that it deals specifically with, with gender-based discrimination. So the dust-up, if you will, was let's say that, that the guidance that they put in place provided different um, requirements, different standards than what they would have had for race-based, national origin-based. So they actually took Title IX and used it to discriminate more against gender-based harms than some of the other uh, the other remedies that are there. And I think that that's, that's important for people to note. Can you expand on that because that's a little confusing. <laughs> All right. And Karen, you can help me out. So what we generally hear on Twitter, what we generally hear on social media, once something like this happens is it's a crime. They should go to the police. Um, let me, let me break that down a little bit. So let's say that you have, for example, a neo-Nazi at the school. And there's a Jewish kid, and he's trying to get to class. And every day, this neo-Nazi taunts him and torments him to the point that he doesn't want to go to class anymore. He can't go to the police with that. That's not a police issue. There is a remedy in civil law 
um, which allows him to go and seek redress and have this dealt with. So when you have somebody- at the school at the school itself at the school itself, yeah, because why? Because that precludes him from having an education. Got it. Mine is there to make sure that women aren't precluded from having an education because of, of who they are, because of their gender. Mm-hmm. So, so you have two avenues. You have the criminal avenue, which is to go to the police. Um, that can take a long time to investigate and to deal with, mm-hmm. frankly. So what is this person supposed to do? Stay in school and still have that person still have access as she goes to school. She still doesn't feel safe as she goes to school. So Title IX is there to make sure that there is um, a, a responsibility by the school to ensure her education, that she is safe in her education, that she is not discriminated against. So there are two tracks to take. Um, so whenever people bring that up to me, it's, it's simple. I mean, you can apply it to your workplace. If you have somebody that's constantly being um, subjected to discrimination in the workplace, you don't go to the police for that. You go, there are laws and you go to your workplace to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing with regard to education. Okay. So there are, as far as I understand it, on college campuses around the U.S., there are Title IX officers in place on campus for a student to go to file a complaint if something happens, whether it's um, an assault, whether it's some other something that keeps them from being able to feel safe going to class. Is that correct? Am I saying that right? Karen? Yes. Under Title IX, every university or school is required to have a Title IX coordinator. And the Title IX coordinator is required to be trained in Title IX. Now, that person may not be the person that's conducting an investigation, but they coordinate those services for the school district or for the university. There's no specific, uh, you know, you don't, there's no college degree in Title IX, but there are trainings that school districts can send administrators to to teach them about what Title IX requires. And under Title IX, every district and every university is required to have a Title IX coordinator. So um, every school district, K-12, has to have one. Yes, every, every college university has to have one. Yes, exactly. Now, a district doesn't, it doesn't mean that necessarily there has to be a Title IX coordinator in every building. I mean, you have tiny districts, you have big districts. New York right. City is a lot different than Podunk, you know, Michigan. So it, you know, it depends. It's what's reasonable, but typically they have one person or that's that's uh, at the the top position. Um, now, is that the person that you're necessarily required to report to? No, that's not necessarily the person. In in K through twelve, it's very important under the new rule. Kids can, if they report to anybody that they think is a person in authority, and that can be the lunch lady, you know, for a first grader, like, oh, she's the lunch lady, she's important. Anybody in an elementary school or secondary school, they are considered mandatory reporters as far as, okay, I've got this complaint, or 
uh, allegation from this child, I need to direct them or go to the Title IX coordinator myself. Now, at the university... So wait, level, let, me, let me stop you one second. So okay. I just want to clarify that. So if the child tells a teacher or a staff member at the school that something is happening, that person is required to take that complaint to Title IX, to the coordinator. Yes. Okay. Yes. Not right. the student, him or herself. Not, no, the student, the student. And is not, not the parent. And not the parent. They can do that, but they okay. don't have to. So okay. everybody in the K through 12 setting, everyone needs to be trained that if you hear these types of uh, things coming from, from a young child, you need to report it. You need to tell the Title IX coordinator, the designated person. And, um, and the reason for that is, like I said, little kids don't know who, you know, they don't know who's in charge. To them, like the lunch lady might be the most important person, you know, as far as their boss in the school. Mm -hmm. um, it's different at university level. Now, the new rule says that they actually have to go and make the complaint with the Title IX coordinator, the Title IX office in the in the university or college. They who? They who? A, a, a student that has a complaint. Uh, okay. They have to report it. There are very much, as far as who's a mandatory reporter at the university level, uh, it, it's, you know, it's not very many people are. And it used to be that coaches and trainers and people in the athletic department and professors, everybody was a mandatory reporter. Not anymore. When uh, did that change? With the new rule. When the new rule came into place. Which was when? August of 2020. Okay. When the new rule went into effect, it was issued in May of 2020. It went into effect in August of 2020. The new rule says, you know, coaches are not mandatory reporters. Athletic trainers are not mandatory reporters. And the reason or the, the reasoning for that was they want, and I'll be quite honest, I don't agree with the reasoning. The reasoning is that we want students and athletes to feel comfortable talking to their coaches and not worry that they're going to report what they, the story that they told, um, which I, I, again, I don't agree with that, but that, yeah. that, that was the rationale. So the hard, the really hard part in college and uh, college and university level is 18 year old freshmen. They don't know what the title nine office is. They might get a little training or a little, you know, flyer in their, their, uh, their freshman welcome backpack that explains what it is, but you know, they don't, they don't read it. They don't pay any attention and they don't know what it is. Also under title nine, one of the other requirements is that it, no matter what level you're at, they make it real obvious where title nine is, what it is and what you need to do to communicate with title nine. You should be able to pop on their website. And the first thing you see is, if you suffer from gender-based harassment, et cetera, here's, here are your rights. Here's what you need to do. It, it, but unfortunately, it's not like that. Um, so as far as a parent or a student is concerned, um, they might have to do a little digging to find out where they need to go. And they, they don't make it easy. Um, so some of are great. I wanted to just... I want to just stop right here a second and mm -hmm. and kind of sum up what you've said so far, because I think this is really important information. K through 12 
if a child is suffering some sort of gender-based discrimination, they can tell pretty much any faculty or staff member at the school, and that faculty or staff member is required by law to report it to the Title IX coordinator. Yes. At the college level, though, if a student is experiencing gender-based discrimination or assault or harassment, whatever it is, no longer can they go to their coach, tell their coach, and the coach is now required to report it. No, that used to be the case prior to August of 2020, but starting August of 2020, now the student, him or herself, and presumably it's going to be a herself, but could be a male student as well, is required to take that incident directly to Title IX on campus and cannot, should not rely on a coach, a professor, an advisor to take that information to Title IX on their behalf. The student actually has to do it. That's correct, yes. Okay, so, so how do we educate our kids that this is what they have to do if something's going on? Because, <clears throat> I mean, how do you tell an 18-year-old, you know, maybe they're having issues with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or maybe they're having issues being harassed by a coach or a teammate. They're not going to go talk to the athletic director and expect to get help. Who do they talk to? They talk to their friends and maybe they, they tell their parents, but the parents yeah. can't report this on their behalf. Well, the parents, the parents could, Oh, the parents could report it. Yes, you can. Re somebody can report. I'm aware of this harassment and they will reach out to that. The, the, the person that's being harassed and say, we got a report of A, B and C. Uh, is this happening? Do you want to come in and meet with us about it? Do you want to file a, you know, a formal complaint? So other people can report it. Um, I think the most important thing, you know, for parents is if you've got a, whatever school district your child is in, go on their website and find their Title IX uh, guidance, which may or may not even be there. But you can also look for, you know, they'll have sex-based harassment, all kind, you know, they'll have board policies that may not reference Title IX, but they're kind of close. And if you can't find it, then you need to go to the administration and say, where are your Title, title IX guidelines? Who is your Title IX coordinator? And it you know, the, the first thing that I do when I get a new case with a family that comes in and they're having a problem, the very first thing I do is go on the website of that school district, if it's a district I'm not familiar with, and I try to find those policies myself. And a lot of times, even with all the experience I have in being a lawyer, I have a hard time finding them. So it, it can be difficult. If you can't find it, you need to go and ask. Who is your Title IX coordinator? Same thing at the university level. It's a little bit different because your kids are over 18, but you, you as a parent can still get that information, get it and have it ready and try and talk to your kids about it when they're home, you know, on the weekend or whatever. Say, look, I, I know you're not interested in this. Going to a frat party is a lot more fun, but please just take a minute and at least 
look at this and know, you know, maybe a bell's going to ring in your head. You, you're one of your roommates has a problem and at least you'll have some kind of context. Okay. And one of the things about that, that you brought up, it's the continuity of it all. So if you have K through 12, that's not educating kids on Title IX and what it's there for. They should seamlessly be able to go to college and recognize Title IX and what it's there for and where their Title IX coordinator is. But it's the breakdown in the K through 12, not mm. providing that not providing information to parents. If you think about it, if you think about it this way, in a, in a public school, you will have campaigns about anti-tobacco, anti-drugs, anti-alcohol, anti-bullying, bullying. Now, they never call it sexual assault, they call it bullying. Um, so they have all of those, but they don't do the same, have the same campaigns, do the same thing with this issue. So there should be a seamless continuity from K-12 public school into college, mm -hmm. but there's not. So, and, and parents don't know about it. They don't know what Title IX is. They, they truly have no idea. They don't know why it's there or what it's there for, or who they talk to. And a lot of times, um, what, what schools shouldn't do, and what they do, um, your, your Title IX office um, should not be loaded with attorneys. No offense to Karen. It shouldn't be loaded with attorneys. Your Title IX office, the front end, everything that it should be doing, the Title IX office, the Clery office, all of that, is prevention, prevention and awareness on the front end. By the time you're having to respond to reports, you're in crisis, mm. but it's flip-flopped. So we have so many reports that we need to investigate and respond to that we can't handle the prevention. We can't do that part very well. Interesting. So there needs to be that flip-flop and that's not there. And the other thing that parents need to know is when you're sitting down with your child and you're reviewing in high school, as they're in high school, um, Clery Act statistics, Clery statistics that are on the website. You can look up any school and see all of their stats. If you are looking at, let's say, the University of Minnesota with like 50,000 students and they've had three rapes reported, that should send up the flag. That doesn't mean that Minnesota all of a sudden has the corner market on rape prevention. <laughs> it means that Minnesota is probably not reporting very well. They don't have a solid reporting structure. Um, victims are not reporting. There, there's a whole huge breakdown. Mm -hmm. um, so usually we want to go and look at the schools that have the least number. In this case, you want to look at the schools that have a significant number because they're doing something right with regard to reporting. So you're saying that even though a school's reporting low numbers, that just means their reporting system's messed up. It doesn't mean they're necessarily doing a great job at keeping their students that's safe. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's no, that's not what you should probably get from that. Or and and I mean if you think about it, if you look at all of the reports, if you look at all of the research, it's one in five. 
one in five women, and it's usually, okay, let me back up. One in five women will be sexually assaulted. That doesn't even include interpersonal violence. On a, con on a college campus, one in five. Right. Usually that happens during what they call the red zone. The red zone is six weeks about into their freshman year. Um, you can do all the calculations as to why that would happen. Um, and so, so basically at that point, that's when most of these are happening. So that's why parents need to be on it. The schools need to be on it. Um, women that are going to college need to be on it. But here's the thing. The boys need to be on it. Yeah. And, um, and, and one of the things that I caution a lot with regard to parents is they see something in the news. Let's say it's even um, Kobe Bryant. They see the discussion of what happened in, in Eagle, Colorado. And they say whatever comes to mind. What they need to recognize is that their daughters are listening to them if they are maligning this victim or questioning the motives or whatever. And their sons are also listening to it and being influenced by what their behavior should be based on how mom and dad are talking about it. Um, and so I think for me, everything that happens in the home on this issue, um, the boundaries that are set, the discussions that are had, um, all of those influence whether your child is going to be a victim or a perpetrator. All of it does. A victim, a perpetrator, or somebody who or is- a bystander. Or a bystander. Or an and, oh, right. But also the opposite of that, somebody who is going to come to someone's aid if they see a crime being perpetrated against them right. or see them being treated poorly. It may not even be a criminal behavior. It may just be verbal, you know, berating or, or something. Um, there is a difference between perpetrating, bystanding, mm -hmm. and intervening. Yeah. Well, and bystanders should intervene. Um, and, but they and don't always, right? They don't always. No, no. And a lot of times what happens is that the, um, the victims have, have an internal, whatever, whatever you want to call it, an internal issue with reporting, with being a victim of a crime. Um, I, I'll tell you this. There's a lot out there about how victims should respond once something like this happens. Um, I will tell you that most victims are much more critical. They have an, they're internally critical more so than anything that somebody external could say to them. They're already going through um, the embarrassment. They're going through the shame of it. They're going through the fear of it. They're going through the, the self-doubt. They're going through the self-blame. They are harder on themselves than anybody on the outside. Um, and so to be able to talk to your, your kids, to be able to talk to your kids' friends, to be able to um, have those conversations very early on, very early. This stuff is happening in junior high. This stuff mm -hmm. is happening before junior high. To have those conversations and to keep those going 
is um, is absolutely vital. And especially when you're talking as we are um, with with um, kids who are athletes and who are around coaches and that kind of thing. They need to know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, where they can go, who they can talk to um, at a very, very, very early age. And we're not really doing that until they hit high school. We're not having those conversations. They're, They're already down the road. They're already down the road with that. They already know more than you think that they do. Mm hmm. And I think, you know, kind of looping this back to tennis and, you know, because we're parenting aces, um, this whole notion of, you know, when our children start playing tournaments as, you know, young kids, um, once they hit a certain level in the sport, they may be traveling with a coach without the parents, or they may be traveling with a friend's family without the parents there, you know, without their own parents there. And making sure that our kids understand what is appropriate and what is inappropriate behavior on the part of adults to them and on the part of their peers toward them um, is super important. And I've addressed this before on this podcast and in articles on parentingaces.com. But I think, you know, before you send your child off to a tournament with a coach or send them off to a camp where you're not going to be there, you have to establish very clearly that, you know, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, it's not okay. You need to call me if you um, can't get away from the person doing those things. We we have a safe word established. If I hear that safe word as your parent, I'm going to know something's up and I need to come get you. Um, all of, you know, it. nobody wants to really think about it. It's like writing your will, right? Nobody wants to do that because it makes you face these awful things, but we have to do it. But, but even at that point, that's where you're getting to the point of responding to a crisis. Well, no, I'm saying before the crisis, you have right, to have right, these systems right. in place. But what what people need to um, to understand, what parents need to understand, is what the grooming process looks like. It's not like these are people that just kind of, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just you know, there's there's a grooming process that seems very innocent mm-hmm. that begins to blame the victim that manipulates the victim and it continues over a period of time these these a lot of these perpetrators are um they're doing a marathon while parents are doing a sprint um and parents need to understand that they need to talk to their kids about it about what that looks like um because even with, you know, in some of the issues that, that we've seen with coaches, um, there are the bystanders, there are the people, that the enablers, those who know that it's happening, and um, boys will be boys, you know, doesn't matter, it's, it's whatever, that's what they do, um, and they dismiss it, or, you know, there are the coaches and the trainers that we've seen who even with parents right there are grooming their kids. Mm. It's not like uh, the parents are, are accessible. They're seeing it. They're in the same room. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I think we as parents, especially, you know, perpetrators get involved with these kids. And I realize I'm getting into the kids area, but this is this is really about coaching. Uh, the stories of abuse coming out now about coaches in the NCAA, in your public schools. Um, the stories from when I was in high school, even. I remember those stories. We all know the creepy people, yeah. the creepy adults in the education system. We know our spidey senses went up. Um, we're also, we're, we're told not to trust our gut, though. And, um, and school districts usually dismiss it, especially when it's women, as being dramatic or being emotional. Um, and so they don't, they don't look into that and they do protect their own many times. Um, so you can have all the trainings in the world, as we've seen, if you have an internal system within the school, within the institution that doesn't take this seriously, that dismisses it. Um, that's where we see the problems. And that's where the parents, parents who are watching now, you should call up your school district and say, hey, um, can you tell me a little bit about Title IX? Who's your coordinator? Where, where's your prevention? What are you doing for this? Most of the time, they won't have an answer for you. That's um, terrifying. Unfortunately. Yeah. A, yeah. a couple of like really just bare bones things that parents need to be aware of. This is not an older kid issue. And you will be surprised, Lisa, I'll ask you to take a guess. What grade do you think that there's more sexual activity that takes place than any other, any other grade? I mean, just from raising my own three kids, I would say we saw a lot of issues in sixth and seventh grade. Well, you'll be shocked to know that it's actually kindergarten. What? So... Because kids and kin, you know, little kids are exploring, and so there are there's a lot of sex-based activity that takes place in kindergarten. I know that shocks people, but uh, you know, I I I'm in education, and any elementary school principal will will tell you that it, there's a lot of stuff going on in kindergarten. But what I'm trying to say is, this is not a a middle school, junior high, high school, freshman college issue. It's, it starts with little kids and it goes all the way up. So parents need to really just, you, you have to pay attention. And, it, you know, I know that sounds really simplistic, but that, that's what a lot of it is. Pay attention. Is your kid's behavior changing? Yes, we, of mm. course, our behavior is going to change, but does your kid become withdrawn? Is he acting, he or she being acting afraid of, of a particular person? You have to really watch, especially with little kids. Now, you know, when you're talking about coaches, um, there's something called moral injury, moral, uh, the moral injury. The moral injury kind of stems from that, that phrase stems from uh, when we started learning about people in churches that were abusing kids. And it stems from the, the very person that's supposed to protect you is the one that's causing the injury, moral injury or second wound, they call it. And when those kinds of things happen, a lot of parents are, they kind of shut down like that. Oh, that can't be happening. That teacher wouldn't do that. 
that, you know, that, and they aren't comprehending it. And yes, yeah, sometimes do people make things up? Of course, but statistically it's very rare. It doesn't happen that often when kids make things up. So parents just need to pay attention. And if your kids are telling you things, listen to them, you know, don't, don't blow it off. I've, I've so many parents have told me I didn't believe them at the beginning and you know, they, they have great regrets for not sure not leaving their kids, but um, yeah, it, it is, it starts from the bottom and it goes all the way up to universities and, Parents just need need to be aware and and ask ask questions. And if you don't get answers, keep asking and keep pushing. Don't give up because if it's happening to you or you have the questions, there's lots of other people out there too that have the same questions. And somebody has to start pushing those buttons. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, oftentimes districts don't even they don't know what their responsibilities are. Until somebody like me comes along and says, "Look, you 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 uh, goofed up here," and that's when they start looking at what the problems are, and hopefully parents will start looking before anything bad happens, and try to push their districts to start complying. It's a little bit different at a university level, but you know, kids, uh, and I say kids, students, they can start looking too. Stu- you know, they need it should to- be part of the recruiting process. Yes, it should be. Yes, it absolutely should be part of the recruiting process. Now, like going back to what Kathy was talking about, you know, it's not just about prevention and telling and, and, and sound, this will sound kind of graphic. We don't need to just be teaching our girls how to not get raped. We need to be teaching our boys why you don't rape girls. And we aren't doing that. Uh, that's more, you know, that's a societal issue. But from a practical standpoint, that's what parents need to be talking about. Um, you know, teach your young men how w- what respect means and what consent means and all of those things. And, you know, we could have a whole other session on, yeah. on consent and maybe we will at some point. But, um, you know, can I... Can I ask you both too? I mean, I want to, I really want to talk about this whole um, notion of FERPA that protects, protects our kids when they go to college. And um, I, I spoke about this in, in the podcast with David Lewis. You know, I remember sitting in that, that meeting and getting the safety information and being told flat out by the university you know, your, your student, they don't refer to them as children. Your student is now an adult. You are not allowed as the parent to call and get grades from a professor. You're not allowed to call the health center and find out if your child's being treated for something. Um, the, you know, the onus is on your student uh, to, to do what they're supposed to do and to communicate with you. Um, and then the unsaid part is, but when tuition comes due, we're going to come to you, mom and dad, to write that check, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's mind-boggling to me. Um, universities in particular hide behind FERPA. K-12, through do they do it too? Um, my suggestion to parents, if you've got a child that's going off to college, the first thing that you do is you call the university or you go on their website and you find the FERPA release because they will have one and you make your child sign it and you keep the original. And when the university says, I can't disclose that to you, then you can say, I have a signed FERPA release. 
that, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that sounds pretty simplistic, but a lot of parents aren't even aware of that. Mm-hmm. And then by, by the time they, they find out that they can do something like that, or, you know, their child's off in the North Carolina, well, maybe at Christmas, you'll sign it when you come home. But that's a very important thing to try. I mean, if your kid's 18, they don't have to do it, obviously, but try to encourage them to do that. And um, I, I can speak from that from, from the other side, because I was a professor and I know, um, you know, I, there were times I would have, I was a law professor and I would have parents calling about law students and, um, you know, we would have to say, I'm sorry, I can't disclose that. But if they had a FERPA release, then, then I could talk to them. So that, that's one, one tool that you can use. Um, that doesn't mean that they're not going to still throw it out there. Oh, sorry for, I mean, I hear it all the time and I know, and it doesn't really apply but you, you've got to fight back. And that's the best way to do it is get your child on board before they're gone, yeah. before they put them somewhere. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> two Congress people who were interviewed, who established FERPA, were interviewed about FERPA and, and how it's being applied. Do you want to just tell us real quick what FERPA is, like what it stands for? Karen, do you know? Federal <laughs> Education... <laughs> Oh, you would ask me that, Lisa. I don't know. Sorry. Something Act. I forget what the P is. Privacy. It's, federal, it's basically a federal law that says student information is protected and private and it cannot be released. Even and to the parents. Even to the parents, to anyone if the child is over 18. Um, and schools, it, it has its purpose. It does have its purpose. Um, and a lot of it's just privacy. You know, we don't we don't want somebody to find out if this kid's going to a school for safety reasons. There's all kinds of good uses for it. But um, schools also use it kind of as a weapon and or, or to get out of doing things they don't want to do. Um, so that but that that's what it is. It's federal law that protects your students. Private it, information. It's, it's okay. been. Um... It's the uh, Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. And um, I Sorry. looked it up. I looked it up. We Thank you. I get on that one. <laughs> but um, the, the, the Congress people who wrote it said it's not being applied in the spirit that they had written it. It's and so funny. consider this. And consider, and this happens. Um, and Karen has cases where this has happened. Where you have guys that have been reported to the Title IX office multiple times. You have basically serial rapists or serial abusers on campus. You can't get that information. So if, if the victim goes and says, how, ma- how many people are they doing this to? You can't get the information. If they're still on campus and there are seven Title IX reports, can't get the information. Um, So it's not like if you're convicted of a sex crime in society that you are now a registered sex offender. No, That does not happen on a college campus. Even if somebody has been reported multiple times, they they should only have to be reported once and it should be available. But, but even worse that they can be reported multiple times. And we, we, the public and, 
they, the other students on campus, don't have access to that. So, so many times, yeah, and so many times you could be dealing um, with a sex offender, with a serial rapist on campus, and um, you don't know who the other victims are. You don't, you don't know anything. You're just the one person going in, and it's tunnel vision. Um, and then that's why when you have these cases, such as LSU with the Lewises and all of that, it's, oh, my gosh, there's this many? And you, then you see that the university hasn't responded to any of it. Mm -hmm. Then you get to ask the questions and go, why haven't you responded to any of it? And then it, it truly becomes a parent's nightmare. Um, and, and Because wouldn't it be amazing if somebody went to the Title IX office to file a complaint against someone who has raped them or assaulted them. And the Title IX office then said, let me put you in touch with the other victims of this assailant. Let me guide you so that you have a support system. But that doesn't exist. That never fly. Bless you. Yeah. yeah. I would love it, but it would never fly ever. Right. Well, and, and you have to keep in mind, Lisa, there's the rights of two people there that you're you would be violating the the other victims and the perpetrators and um yeah that that's that's never going to happen now i mean i have had see, i have seen um you know there might be a group of women on a, on a university and people will say do you want to be connected to other people and do you have you we give you permit you give our your permission to do that mm -hmm. but yeah i mean in an ideal world that would be wonderful but it, it that's not ever that's not ever going to happen and i think and i think the important part for your audience lisa is you know once they listen to david's story david lewis's story um, I'm sure they had a lot of questions that came from that, as they should. Um, and I think to address what happens in an athletic department, um, it's, it's no secret that many times football and basketball float the athletic department. I mean, they... It's, they fund them. They fund all the other teams. You know, it, interestingly, they that's not generally the case. So you have right now, I think it's 24 athletic department programs that are operating in the black. The rest are in the red. So that comes from tax subsidies. Um, but that being said, usually football and basketball are your top two sports. Mm -hmm. In terms um, of revenue, you're saying? In terms of revenue, in terms of status, in terms of attention, in terms of expenditure. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can tie dollars to all of this. Sure. So what generally happens is a lot of these Olympic sports, including um, there's a hierarchy in the athletic department of um, it, it's, it's a power structure. So you can have a number of victims um, of sexual assault or of interpersonal violence on, for example, a tennis team. Um, and the coaches, under a lot of pressure to cooperate with the athletic department to not reveal 
if it's, let's say, a football player who is a perpetrator, a basketball player who is a perpetrator, somebody of status who is a perpetrator. Um, and so what you see is, like, for example, at LSU, I don't believe that they're inept. I don't believe that they're incompetent. I believe that this is the system that was set up. Mm. And the who, who needs to hold the power in the system is football. Um, and then they kind of make the rules and the athletic director follows that. And the board of supervisors or the board of trustees or the board of regents also follow that. Um, the college presidents follow that. So basically what you're dealing with, if I can kind of draw it out, is you have the university and the athletic department operates as a separate entity separate but powerful entity. And part of that, that power that the athletic department has extends into um, police departments, law enforcement, district attorney's offices, elected officials, um, and then boosters that are there that provide a lot of the money. Um, so when you have, even if the person is a top tennis player, um, generally they're not going to get the response or the attention that they deserve from something like this. They're not going to get the justice that they deserve from something like this. If their perpetrator is someone of power and status. Um, that's what my organization has worked on for a very, very long time. And you have these families who say, why is this happening? Why? And they see the entire system in that town um, capitulate to the football or basketball program or the athletic department. In fact, in fact, I did something recently. I looked up um, a few different universities and their coaches and their athletic directors and their college presidents. And I looked up their donor status online. What DA they're donating to what sheriff's race they're donating to, what legislator they're donating to. Um, it was eye-opening. When you have coaches and athletic directors and presidents all donating to the local DA, you start to get a picture of how does this work out if let's say it's a football player who's the perpetrator. And we've seen how it works out. Um, and so, so basically victims are felt, victims feel like they're very powerless not because the system is inept or the people in the system are inept or incompetent, but because the system is going to protect the powerful and those with the most status. And that's what we see time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's terrifying. So we're we're coming to the end of our hour and I really want to, like I didn't do in the interview with David, I want to leave parents with some sense of power and, and knowledge and action. And I'm just curious from both of you ladies who have had so much experience dealing with these horrific incidents that happen, 
besides having these conversations with our kids, because we all say, well, that would never happen to my kid because my kid would come and tell me. And, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up with, with the Lewis family is, well, you know, why did they let her go back to LSU? Why did, you know, why did they let her go back? You know, I would never let my kid go back. Well, until you're in that situation, until you have a 20 year old child um, you don't really understand the limits of your abilities and powers, right? Or the dynamic, the dynamic that you're up against. You don't understand it. I didn't tell my parents. When I was raped, I did not tell my parents. Um, my job, as I saw it, was to protect them from the hurt that I was going through. I, did, I needed to protect everybody so that there wouldn't be the collateral damage. So I went from victim to protector in my mind, and my parents were gutted that I didn't tell them. Um, but it was out of protection; it was out of love. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, in the end, what parents what parents need to take from that, or to take from the Lewis situation, or anything, is. Um, and and t- to be very clear, Jade is one heck of a strong woman. I mean, she she is a strong person. Um, and 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 when you go through something like that, you almost are defined. I should have left college. Instead, I graduated in three and a half years because. I have this willpower that says, you're not going to push me out of my campus. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not leaving. Um, and it's the same way in, the, in those situations. And you don't want to be part of the cycle. And we all know what the victim cycle looks like. Self-medicating, you know, all sorts of negative things. Um, and so you really do push yourself. And so I... Um, I think when when people talk about that and say, well, I would have just pulled my child, you have no idea what you would do once it actually happens. You have you don't know. I could say what I would do if it were my child. I don't know even now what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, from a legal side. I think it's important that parents understand what their rights are, what their um, what what's out there to protect them. I think that's why it was so important to have this conversation conversation with y'all today about Title IX. Um, Cleary, we now know, really isn't there for the victims or the victims' families. It's, it's there as a reporting mechanism for the institution. But Title IX is there for yes. the protection of the students and for the parents' to use to help protect their students, right? Yes, yes. Um, To a parent out there that's seeing things happening and feeling helpless, and and again, I'm not like saying you need to run out and get a lawyer, but sometimes you need to get an advocate that can help you maneuver the system, whether that's a lawyer, uh, sometimes a social worker, but if, you, if you're feeling like you're hitting a dead end and you're watching things go on and you feel helpless, that might be something that you, a parent needs to consider. Um, from a practical standpoint, 
uh, document everything. If you see something going on, document very carefully from day one. Continue to ask questions and do not give up and keep pushing. Most of the families end up with me after they've pushed and done everything they can. And sometimes it's for a month, sometimes it's for a year. And then they finally say, I, I you know, we don't know what else to do. And I, I sometimes I just want to implore families, don't let it get to that point where you, you feel so helpless. Like you, you, you know, a lot of families give up. A lot of families take their kids out of the school. Now it's a little bit different at the university level, obviously. And you might not be in, you know, you might not even be close to where your kid's going to school. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you've got to, you might have to be, be a pushy parent. Um, and that, you know, that's real easy for me to say. I know that sometimes, and sometimes there isn't a solution. If your child is not, doesn't want to cooperate, sometimes you have to let it play out, which is extraordinarily difficult because as a parent and you have an adult child, there's not a lot you can do. Um, I, I will say, I will say um, really fast, and this is really important, and I had this in my mind a little bit ago. Um, it's a little bit controversial. So Karen, if you disagree with me, pipe in. But I have often told... Um, the victims that I work with, that if you have an opportunity to go to a campus resource for counseling or a campus resource for medical care or a campus resource for And the reason why is that we have seen at certain institutions <laughs> the privacy of the victim is, is non-existent. So your counseling records from the victim could go directly to the University of Attorneys. Um, those things have happened. Those things do happen. Um, and so for me, I always advise that you use services that are off campus because you are safer that way. They're, it's, they're not part of the system. Karen, do you agree with that? Um, yes, and yes. I mean, I, I've had many instances where uh, I've had clients that have gone to university services and their records end up in the hands of the general counsel's office. That does happen. Um, it doesn't, and it doesn't mean that some universities don't have, they have, some have great facilities and, and things to offer. People just have to be very careful about doing that. And a couple of, a couple of points that I, I haven't been able to make that I think is important for parents. Uh, Title IX does not just apply to public schools and universities. It can all, it also applies to private schools and universities if they get any kind of federal money, Title IX does apply. And that's really important because, you know, you go have a school like Notre Dame or St. Mary's and they'll say, oh, it doesn't apply to us. Yes, it does. And if they get federal student loans, they get federal, any, they $1 of federal money, the condition of getting that money is that you comply with all federal laws. And that's how that works. So uh, I've had many parents come to me and say, well, it's a private school, so I know Title IX doesn't apply there. And, and I do some digging, and I find out that they get some federal money. So don't give up. 
your rights if you are going to a private school. Um, the other thing is, uh, which is a little controversial with the new rule, is that especially at university levels, if the, the assault or abuse occurs in a an off-campus building or an apartment that is not affiliated with the university or is not a, not a school-sanctioned event, Title IX does not apply. That does not mean that the university, they may have their own internal policies, like uh, it still applies, but Title IX does not. And that is a controversial part of the new rule um, because, you know, a lot of things really, the, the place that where most of the stuff happens, uh, frat houses, sororities, things like that. It also does not apply to um, international programs or people that are on study abroad. It does not apply in that instance either under the new rule. And when you say new rule, you mean the rule that went into effect August of 2020? August of 2020. Now, that rule is probably going to be changed at some point with the new administration, but we don't know, you know, when when that's going to happen and what those changes are going to be. But um, we're all, of course, keeping a close eye on that, and we could do some kind of an update. Yeah, for sure. My um, my org in the district of Massachusetts over the guidance, and the judge called it discriminatory. So if there are any attorneys out there watching, you can go ahead and pull it from the, uh, the U.S. Federal Court District of Massachusetts and, um, and try to apply it in some of the cases where this guidance might have kicked in. Interesting. One other thing I want to clarify that, Karen, I think you said is to make sure you document everything. Yeah. Documenting, <clears throat> excuse me, includes taking screenshots. Um, you know, keeping notes. But if you have electronic documentation, print it out because yeah. computers crash, phones crash. If it's only stored on an, in an electronic manner, if that's the only place you have it and your computer crashes or your phone crashes, it's gone. Print out hard copies and keep them in a safe place. Yes. And in this day and age, a lot of harassment and bullying and such is tied to social media and we're just starting to grapple with that. Um, but yes, document every phone call and, and keep careful notes who you talk to. And um, one thing that I see a lot is uh, schools and universities, they don't want to send you an email because they don't want a record of it. So right. you have to just be, be diligent and, and, and keep track and that, that will help you if, if, you know, it gets, if things really start going south, that that's really, really. But the bottom line is we want to prevent anything like this from happening. Yeah. These are all, you know, we've been really digging into what to do if something horrible does happen. But, but really the key is to prevent it from happening in the first place. And the best way to do that is to educate yourself on Title IX know what's available to you, talk to your kids, have the conversations, you know, establish that, that good communication from an early age. As Karen said, a lot of these things start in kindergarten. I mean, I, that just, ugh, That's you know, I, I mean, ugh. 
So, so start having these conversations with your kids. They're not fun conversations. Nobody wants to talk to their kid about inappropriate touching or name calling or bullying or, or, you know, an adult that's supposed to take care of you, not taking care of you. And in fact, hurting you, nobody wants to have those conversations with their six-year-old, their 10-year-old, even their 18-year-old. It's a horrible conversation to have, but our best defense is open lines of communication between parents and children. Yes. Well, and especially again, talking to your boys at an early age. Yes. You know, a lot of times we go to, I need to protect my little girls. um, And that's great, but we shouldn't see it as it's inevitable that she'll need to be protected while the boys just kind of do their own thing. It's we need to educate the boys and I'm very grateful. I have two boys and they hear the work that I do. The work that I do is a part of their lives. So, um, and it has been throughout their lives. So we've always, they've always heard this in the background and um, we can, they can ask questions of me. They know what's happened to me. Um, it's, I'm an open book. And if I'm an open book, then they feel like they are too. That's awesome. I want to just urge all of you watching this. Um, if you are on Twitter, Kathy is on Twitter. Uh, it's at we lead project, right? Or is it at, at we at, lead project Yeah. or, or they can, I'm on Twitter at Kathy Redmond. So both is great, but, um, yeah, reach out. I mean, if you need guidance, reach out, please. Yeah. Both of these women have been incredibly um, accessible to me as I've had questions, as I've started to learn more and more about what's happening, um, not just on college campuses, but um, in other places as well where our children are. And um, I want to thank you both for coming on and taking time to do this with me and For those of you watching, thank you very much for tuning in. This is important information. I urge you to go to ParentingAces.com and read the show notes. We'll have some links there, some resources there for you that will help you as you navigate through all of this stuff. Whoever said parenting was easy. It is not. Um, But uh, again, thank you both for joining us. And to the viewers, thank you so much for tuning in. We will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.